This is a Brain Channel program from the Department of Neurosciences at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. Visit us at uctv.tv brain to explore cutting-edge research, treatment options for conditions related to the nervous system, and the inner workings of the human mind. Well, welcome everybody to the inaugural Shiley Endowed Lecture Series that uh, was made possible by the generous support of Darlene Donald Shiley. And we just want to say a few things at the beginning because uh, it's really important to lay out the partnership that we've had with the Shiley Foundation and uh, how the Shiley Marcos Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at UCSD really was brought to a higher level through the generous support of Darlene. So we're really working today to show uh, how further innovation, collaboration, and groundbreaking thinking within the field of Alzheimer's disease can take us to the next level. And uh, so for more than three decades, the Shiley Marcos Alzheimer's Disease Research Center has been leading the charge here at UCSD and nationally. And in 2004, we were even more empowered to, uh, to extend that work thanks to the generous uh, support of Darlene and Donald Shiley. So just a couple words about Darlene. Darlene is a steadfast, integral, forward-thinking partner for us. And she really has uh, touched our entire community. So not only at the Shiley Marcos ADRC has Darlene been making her presence felt, but also through, throughout our community at San Diego, including the Collaboration for a Cure program that she really spearheaded and has been uh, extending its reach across our local institutes, including the Sanford Burnham Prebus Medical Discovery Institute, the Scripps Research Institute, the Salk Institute for Biological Studies, and the Venter Institute, as well as UC San Diego. So as you can see, we have such a great community here to forward our research against this awful disease and to help the families and uh, the patients themselves so that we can say goodbye to this awful illness. And Darlene really has been uh, at the forefront of that work, and so we're so happy to have her. And so what I want to introduce now is Tom Cerruti, who is the Executive Director of the Shiley Foundation, to introduce Dr. Brad Hyman. Thank you, Dr. Brewer. Um, Darlene had asked uh, me and Linda Schof, uh, another trustee of the Shiley Foundation, to stand in for, unfortunately, Darlene has a knee injury, and uh, she'd expected that she'd be able to recover for it, but uh, wasn't able. Uh, but she's very much uh, was regretful that she couldn't be here to attend the uh, inauguration of the Shiley Endowed uh, Lecture and to introduce such a distinguished uh, first lecture as Dr. Hyman is. The, uh, the Donald and Darlene Shiley have been um, at the forefront of uh, philanthropy with respect to Alzheimer's disease research and other neurodegenerative disease research, but also patient care as well. Um, they've uh, been involved in this for well over 20 years, and with respect to this particular institution, uh, probably I'd say around 15 years or so, when the, uh, their involvement with the Shiley Marcos uh, uh, ADRC uh, began. Now, the, the Shiley Marcos Alzheimer's Disease Research uh, Center was named in honor of Donald Shiley, Mrs. Shiley's late husband and her mother, uh, D. Marcos, who also suffered from uh, this uh, devastating disease. Um, we are here today, we're very pleased to be here because again, this lecture series is yet 
another uh, attempt to move the, the research forward with respect to uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, today, we, I'm introducing Dr. Brad Hyman, uh, who is an internationally recognized expert in Alzheimer's disease research and is the director of the Massachusetts Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, Center at Mass General Hospital. He's also uh, involved with the Alzheimer's Laboratory at Mass General Institute for Neurodegenerative Diseases, and uh, he is the John B. Penny Jr. Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School. In his research efforts, Dr. Hyman explores the neuropathophysiologic and genetic factors that contribute to dementia, and he's offered more than he has authored more than 600 uh, peer-reviewed uh, papers that have been cited in hundreds of publications. He's a member of the National Academy of Medicine, is the recipient of the National Institutes of Health Merit Award, the Potemkin Prize, the Metropolitan Life Award, and the Alzheimer's Association Lifetime Achievement Award. He's, um, he is integral to some of the most groundbreaking Alzheimer's and dementia research today, and we are looking forward very much to learning about his perspective on what is happening in the field um, and uh, how medical and scientific professionals and members of the community can continue to collaborate and to, uh, for a cure and for new methods of, uh, of, of treatment as well, perhaps, and, the, and, and, and ways in which we can advocate for strong uh, patient and caregiver support systems. Um, please, let me, please join me in welcoming Dr. Brad Hyman. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Linda. And uh, if you'd pass on my thanks to, to Mrs. Shiley as well, please. It's really an honor and, and, and a privilege to be here and to help kick off the annual endowed lecture uh, here. Uh, I have um, many happy memories of, of UCSD. I, I view Bob Katzman and Bob Terry from years ago as being the heroes of, 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 of science and, and Leon Thal, of course, being a, a just dominant figure in, in, in the field and, and a close friend as well. And, and so for, for many years, I uh, <clears throat> should speak more loudly about how wonderfully I, 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 I uh, have, have always thought of them. What I'd like to do to, today is share, yeah, share um, some of the recent work that we've been doing, thinking about Alzheimer's disease as a process that takes years and years and years to play out. And it's one of those things which is, is really sort of difficult to think about in the laboratory. In the laboratory, we're very good at doing experiments that, that start in the morning and hopefully end by the mid-afternoon. Uh, certainly, you want a series of experiments that don't last any longer than than a uh, what we call a postdoc life, which which is two or three years of of, of training for a student or a postdoc, and and yet Alzheimer's disease doesn't obey any of these rules. It it really starts out maybe a decade or so before patients show up in the clinic. It takes another year or two before a diagnosis is, is really established in another eight or ten years as, as the disease plays out. And, and so how do you model a disease process that, that stretches out over the course of maybe 20 years, half of which is clinically silent, in, in a way that, that helps you figure out how to intervene in that process and, and slow it down or, or, or stop it? 
And so we've been, been struggling with this and trying to think about different ways of examining the disease process at different stages in, in sort of a cross-sectional way so that we can go, well, in a year it looks like this, and five years it looks like this, and ten years it looks like this, and then take those snapshots and kind of put them together into what might be a kind of a movie of, of, of what all those pictures would look like. There's some problems in, in, in doing that, of course, and, and I'm uh, reminded of a colleague of mine who pointed out that if you did the same thing for a baseball game, a Red Sox game in, in, in particular, what you'd find out is that there's a lot of people standing around drinking beer if you just took one picture every every hour or so during the course of the four- or five-hour Red Sox-Yankees game. And, and while that might, in fact, be the point of baseball... <laughs> Still, there, there's something more to, 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 to the game, which is, of course, that the Red Sox end up figuring out a way to lose at the end, no matter, what the, no, no matter what's happened in, in between. So what we've been trying to do is figure out ways to model this process so that we can do more than just get snapshots. And I'm, I'm going to be presenting really th- three stories, and, and they have to do with this whole question of how the changes that we see in the brain at, at autopsy relate to the kinds of clinical symptoms that occur in Alzheimer's disease, and what are the molecular and biological mechanisms that lead to progression of the disease. So I'll be focusing primarily on uh, neurofibrillary tangles, which are these tau-containing uh, lesions within a specific set of neurons in the brain. Uh, I'll mention these amyloid plaques, which are distributed throughout the brain and, and, and occur very early on in the disease. And, and of course, uh, these lesions are associated with neuronal death and, and loss of neural systems. And, and it, is, it is that loss of neural system integrity that ultimately leads to the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Part of the question is, is how Alzheimer's disease gets worse over time. So people don't wake up one morning and, 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 and are demented, uh, with the possible exception of undergraduate students on Monday mornings. Uh, aside from that, though, it's, it's this gradual process which I've described. And, and if you look neuropathologically at cross-sectionally individuals who have died at, at various points, presumably in the disease, there's a very consistent hierarchical pathway that, that seems to be affected with those areas of the brain that are most involved in, in, in memory formation, the limbic areas, entorhinal cortex, hippocampus, and so forth, affected first. And, and then the disease seems to spread out from, from those areas and later on other areas of the brain that have to do with language and judgment and so forth and, and involved and, and ultimately the, the entire cortical mantle is, is involved in Alzheimer's disease and, and this has been given a, a um, nomenclature from Heiko Brock and, and, and uh, called the Brock staging it goes from stage one to stage six of early to late and it, it seems as if there, there's this progression of disease that matches pretty, pretty well, at least in general terms, with the progression of clinical symptoms from an early short-term memory impairment to more, more severe memory in, involvement and some, some additional language difficulties and so forth. And so, in general, it seems like this progression of disease matches with where tangles form and also where neuronal loss is, because those two things really do come match very closely to one another. 
even within these, these big brain areas like the limbic system, the neurofibrillary tangles occur in very unique populations of cells. And so in the entorhinal cortex, which is the primary area where, which, which uh, helps with encoding of, of new memories, it's layer two of the six layers of entorhinal cortex specifically that's affected by tangles. And interestingly, those are the cells that anatomically give rise to the projection to the hippocampus. So those are the cells that provide information to the rest of the brain as, as to what, what one is supposed to be remembering. And early on in the disease, those cells are, are, are affected and then affect the, the, the uh, hippocampus. So one of the questions that's puzzled us over the years is how is it that the disease spreads from one area to the next? And, and then also, what's unique about those cells that are particularly affected? There were two, two ideas that, that we, we puzzled over. Uh, one is that the cells that are affected tend to be very similar to one another. They tend to be large. They tend to be glutamatergic. They tend to have a, a major projection with relatively sparse uh, uh, projections. They, they tend to have other biochemical characteristics. Maybe they're just vulnerable. And, and it, it turns out that you know everybody who's blonde and blue-eyed is more likely to get a sunburn. And, and so there's lots of people who are blonde and blue-eyed, and they all get sunburns. And, and some people are a little more sensitive than others, but but you know, find that, that it's something about the fundamental characteristics of the cell, which makes them vulnerable to get tangles and ultimately die. The other possibility, and, and, and something that we, we, we thought about early on, was that the neurons that, that were affected were not universally, but by and large, connected to one another. And was there something about the fact that they were connected that, that led to their vulnerability? And I'll fast forward to, to the uh, uh, current thought, which is that both of those things is true, that, that there's both something about that's unique that makes some types of classes of neurons vulnerable, and also the fact that they're connected to one another seems to make them vulnerable. So the three questions that I'd like to pose in the course of the next you know, 30 or 40 minutes is does tau propagate? That is, do these neurofibrillary tangles actually, uh, actually go from one cell to the next cell? Does the fact that the cells are connected, is that why they both can, can, can develop these tangles? And, and I'll emphasize tau, of course, is the major molecule that, that makes up these tangles. And so I'm, I'm using them somewhat interchangeably, although, in, in, in fact, in many of the experimental models, I'm going to be using a mutant form of tau, P301L, which uh, actually clinically is associated with frontotemporal dementia. And, and I just want you to forgive me that little, that little interchange of, 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 of work. The second question is, does amyloid impact tau propagation? I mentioned that tangles occur in these very hierarchical distribution, one area of the brain, then the next, then the next, whereas the amyloid deposits, and amyloid, which has been the real key in terms of therapeutic interventions for the last decade at least in, in, in terms of, of pharmacologic development, amyloid tends to occur throughout the cortex tends really not to be associated with clinical symptoms in any way that we can, can, can measure. So there are people with a lot of amyloid who have no symptoms, people with hardly any amyloid who have, who have more, more symptoms. It's, it, it, it's not that closely correlated. And the places in the brain that are affected by amyloid aren't really the places in the brain that, that give symptoms. But nonetheless, everyone who has Alzheimer's disease, by definition, has a lot of amyloid in their brain. 
And, and so one of the puzzles we had was, well, most diseases only have one lesion. Well, why does Alzheimer's disease have two lesions? And, and is there something unique and, and, and synergistic about that fact? And then the third is, is some, some new data in, in which we're curious to understand how it is that the soluble tau, which is a normal molecule in every neuron, somehow decides to aggregate and, and condense and form these neurofibrillary tangles, which, which seem to be the critical toxic uh, bioactive molecule. And uh, with the exception of this sort of introductory piece, all the data I'm going to be showing you is, is, is not only not yet published, but, but much of it is, is fairly uh, early days. And, and so not, not all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed, but, but uh, this is such a, a rich community of, of neuroscience. I very much wanted to share with you what our, our current thinking was. So first, the question is, how spread, or is this underlying vulnerability in susceptible neurons? In order to address this question, we built a, mo a, a mouse model, actually using a Mark Mayford's driver line. Uh, I saw the windows from his lab as we walked over here this morning. So, Mark, I, I don't know if you're, you're here, but thank you. Uh, and this was a, a, a line that, that makes a tau only in the entorhinal cortex, that area of the brain which is primarily the first place that's, that's involved in Alzheimer's disease. When I say tau is driven only in the entorhinal cortex, I mean only in quotes. It, it, it's, a, it's a mouse after all, it doesn't really know. It's mostly in the entorhinal cortex and, and, and for the purposes of, of, of the work sh shown here, uh, that's sufficient. And you can see here in this orange stain where the tau is in entorhinal cortex here in pre and paraspiculum. And then this line here are the terminals of these cells. So these cells project via the perforate pathway to the middle portion of the molecular layer of the dentate gyrus. And so you can see the end, end points, the terminals of, of these cells right in that line. And so this is a, a relatively young mouse. It's, it's doing just, just what we expected it to do. And as the mouse ages, something really unexpected happened. So as the mouse got to be 12 months of age and then 18 months of age, and then, well, I, I, I can tell you what happened at 18 months of age. The graduate student who was working on this came into my office and said, am I ever going to graduate? And, and, and I said, just, just wait a little while longer. Um, and, and so at 24 months of age, something, something astonishing happened. And that is that the cells that the entorhinal cortex projects to, which are the dentate gyrus granule cells, developed human tau. And uh, it, surprisingly, there was no messenger RNA in, in, in the human, in the dentate gyrus granule cells. So the only way that this human tau could have gotten there is if it had been released from the entorhinal cortex and then taken up by the dentate gyrus granule cells. This was a little controversial when we first proposed this. Uh, we we uh, went so far as to do laser capture, pulled out the individual cells that had the human tau immunostaining, uh, did qPCR to detect as few as 10 copies of messenger RNA for human tau. There, there wasn't any there. Uh, and, and we uh, did a variety of other sort of control experiments and came to the conclusion that, that this really was 
a feature of the mouse model that tau could be released from one cell, taken up from, from the next cells. We could find human tau in rare microglia and astrocytes, again suggesting that it was released and taken up. And then at, at essentially the exact same minute that, that, that we published this paper, uh, Karen Duff's laboratory published the exact same observations in, in, in another line. Uh, and, and so it, it became not just a crazy thing that Brad was thinking, but a crazy thing that Brad and Karen were both thinking. And, and, and that, I think, really helped make us a, a little bit more serious about whether or not this could be true. So the, the first couple of, of years after that observation, which was in 2012, was really trying to convince ourselves that tau really did propagate between neurons because tau is an intracellular protein. It's not supposed to get out of the cell. It certainly shouldn't be taken up by the next cell. There's certainly no reason in the world to, to, to think that any neuron would take up a misfolded protein and let it hang out there for, for a while. And it had a variety of, of implications, which have been broadly called prion-like propagation, which, which uh, a term that, that I don't particularly like in, in terms of its implications for prion biology, but which has a, a, a thought about uh, uh, um, changing the protein conformation based upon a misfolded protein that instructs the protein in the next cell for, for what goes on. So we wanted to understand really the underlying biology. Was this true or was this just something that happened in, in a mouse? And we wanted to understand then each one of those those processes that I just mentioned. So if this, is, if this whole process is true, you'd expect that there would be tau in the cell body, it would go down the axon, it would accumulate at the synapse, it would be in both the pre- and postsynaptic sites, it would then be able to, to uh, find tau in the next cell and, and instruct that tau to misfold and, and so forth. And each one of these steps would have a specific kinetic process associated with it. And so we've spent some years developing the tools to try to measure the kinetics of each one of these steps. And, and I'll, I'll just, just jump to, again, conclusion. It turns out that each of these predictions that tau is released at the synapse, that tau can be found at the synapse by EM or by some other techniques that, that, that we developed, that we can stimulate tau to be released, that can be taken up by neurons. Uh, all of that can be demonstrated experimentally in a variety of systems using both mouse models and now in more, more recent work in human, from, in, in human as well. And, and we've even gone to, to the point where we have a pretty good handle on what specific form of tau it is that has these biological properties. So to begin to explore this, I'm going to show you data both from the human and also from the mouse. The mouse model we use is the mouse 4510 transgenic model that we developed with Karen Ash some years ago. It has the advantage that it's a dox response element driving it, and so you can turn it on and, 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 and turn it off. And, and essentially everything that I'm going to show you from the human and from the 4510 mouse are, are interchangeable. The mouse overexpresses human tau by tenfold. And so the, in, for some experiments, the mouse is a little more convenient to use. But, but uh, everything that, that we've done so far really works in, in, in both systems. So in this first experiment, we took soluble tau from a human Alzheimer brain or from a control brain that didn't have Alzheimer's disease and spun it down and, and, uh, to at either 3,000 G, which is enough to sort of pull, pull down nuclei and cells and debris, or 150,000 G, which is enough to pull down molecular lar large molecules. And then we took the supernatant and added it to neurons and culture. 
and uh, the 3,000 G spin, but not the 150,000 G spin, was able to be taken up by by either um, by, by mouse neurons and uh, be detected by an antibody that specifically saw a human tau. And so we had an assay in which we could begin to to sort out what kinds of tau was able to be taken up by neurons. And we could demonstrate that depending on how we, we did the fractionation, we could see the tau either being taken up or not taken up. So we had an, an, an assay to read it out. Next question was whether or not once it's taken up, does it hang out there? Does it rapidly degrade it? Does it go down the axon? Can it be released? To, to do those experiments, we use these uh, three-chamber microfluidic devices that, that uh, Shuko Takeda in the lab designed. In, in these, the uh, neurons are are plated into a small plastic dish, which allows the axon to go down a small channel, interact with other neurons. Those neurons send their axon down the next channel, interact with, with further neurons. You can sort of do this on, on and on and on. You have to be really careful how, how you plate them to get the axons to all go in one direction. But it, it turned out that Shuko very cleverly uh, discovered that gravity was an aid, and if you simply set the the wells upright when the cells, when, when the neurons were plating, you could get the axons to grow in the right direction. And, and so we have this, this device. If we add the high molecular weight tau to the first chamber, it gets transported down the axon, released, taken up by the next neuron, transported down the axon, released, and so forth. And so this idea of propagation, of, of having a specific form of tau um, taken up, transported, released, seem to be true in experimental models. We wanted to understand more about, about this, uh, and so we put it over a size exclusion column, which is a very mild extraction technique. The size exclusion column has big stuff that comes out early, little stuff that comes out late, and, and uh, it's marked here as high molecular weight tau, uh, and uh, the monomer dimer tau, the big peak. This is from the 4510 mice, the equivalent figure from the Alzheimer brain shows that the high molecular weight tau peak is really, really, really small. And so in an Alzheimer brain, about 1% of all the tau is present in this high molecular weight fraction. The rest of it is, 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 is monomeric. This is out of the soluble fraction of tau. So this is not using neurofibrillary tangles, but, but, but just what comes out in a TBS extract. But in every instance, it's only the, the tau that comes down in the high molecular weight fraction, which we estimate to be a, a couple hundred thousand molecular weight, which is bioactive and competent to be taken up by neurons. And, and so in the lower panels, you can see the green is the human tau. Only those early fractions are taken up, even though there's 99 times more tau in, in, in the low molecular weight fraction, it's not taken up. So again, this gives us an assay and a way to, to identify what's unique about this tau species. And just to, to take that story a little bit further, we've gone on to use immunodepletion assays to characterize that tau. It's the C terminus is missing. There's a variety of phosphorylation sites that, that appear to be differentially present in the high molecular weight species, and there's some conformation changes, and, and we just are, are now doing some mass spec experiments to really try to define what what that unique bioactive species is. But it's a the the 
sort of critical thing is that it's a rare species, meaning roughly 1% of, of all the tau that's present, which, of course, is just mom nature's way of, 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 of pulling our leg and saying it couldn't possibly be easy to figure out what this stuff is. We still wanted to convince ourselves that, that this notion of propagation was true, that, that, and we wanted to develop other model systems to begin to, to examine whether or not this was true in an intact brain rather than simply in cells and culture, because cells and culture really aren't exactly the same as the intact brain. And so I just, just present two bits of data here. One is if we inject this high molecular weight species or the low molecular weight species into an intact wild type or P301S overexpressing mouse, it turns out that, that in the intact brain, neurons take up this, the unique bioactive species. They don't take up the low molecular weight species. And, and it actually hangs out there for at least a month, which is really astonishingly long time. So it's a very stable confirmation. The, uh, on the right hand is, is a panel in which we developed an AAV system in order to ask the same question. This uses a green fluorescent protein and an iris-like device, which is a, a, a 2A, and then the human tau. In this case, it's P301L, although we've done this with wild-type mal and with various other mutations. You in, inject it into a, an area in the brain, shown here, the anterior cortex, and it, uh, if you wait eight to ten weeks, you can find human tau positive cells that don't contain the green fluorescent protein in the projection zones of the of, of the entorhinal cortex. And so, instead of having to wait 24 months, which my my poor graduate student Alex de Calignon had to do for that first experiment I showed you, now we're able to to do experiments in eight to ten weeks. And, and interestingly, we're able to now do experiments in mice that are different ages to start with or in mice that have different, different genetic backgrounds or mice that overexpress various things that may accelerate or, or, or protect against this phenomenon. And those experiments are underway, but I'll share with you at least some, some preliminary data that I just, just saw the first, first blush of last week, which is that if you do this injection into old mice and you wait 8 to 10 weeks, you get about fourfold more propagation than if you inject into young mice. And, and so that whole puzzle about why it is that, that aging is, is, is an important part of, of get people getting Alzheimer's disease, we feel like we're beginning to try to get a, a, a little handle on. From a biochemical perspective, this high molecular weight species is shown here on an SCGH plot. The 4510 mouse is a, creates a, a form of tau that propagates. The 21221 mouse has a, a different form of tau. This is a, a wild type tau that's uh, slightly lower expression levels. It doesn't uh, generate this high molecular weight uh, smear. It also doesn't propagate. And so again, we have a built-in sort of experimental control for, for, for the mouse work. And here, again, we're able to, to, to uh, inject this in, into the mice, or we're able to show that if we use a, a reporter, which is uh, the tau-RD FRET-based reporter, that this high molecular weight species can be isolated, uh, put onto cells, and, and, and form aggregates. So all of this is, is, is exciting and wonderful and, and, and actually quite a bit of fun because the experiments work. Um, but really, it's all, it's all based on post-mortem samples. It's all based on mice. It's all based on, on a variety of systems, which, which if one wanted to be self-critical, which, of course, in Boston, we would never be self-critical. But if one wanted to be self-critical, 
you'd say, well, gee, that could all still be an artifact. Prove to me that this really is relevant to, to patients with Alzheimer's disease and not just to what happens in, in, in tissue, which has already died. And, and so in a heroic set of experiments, Shuko Takeda uh, took 20 um, uh, patients with Alzheimer's disease spinal fluid, uh, 20 controls. Uh, half of those were from our own CSF bank at, at, at Mass General. Half of them were from the University of Washington. Elaine Peskin was, was, and Tom Montine were kind enough to, to work with us on that. And we wanted to make sure that anything we found was true and from two different sources of samples and two different freezers and two different kinds of plastic tubes and two different people who did LPs with different kind of needles and you know that that really that it was going to be robust that 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 it was sort of true as least as best as we could find and we went searching for this high molecular weight species in the in the spinal fluid now i have emphasized to you that this high molecular weight species is about 1% of the total soluble tau and and since tau in spinal fluid is is detectable, but not trivially so. To start with, if you're trying to find 1% of, of that, it, 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 it becomes difficult. And, and Shuko had to develop a variety of biochemical methods to start with a lot of CSF and, 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 and really nail it down. And this paper that we just published in Adults and Neurology demonstrate that in Alzheimer patients, but not in controls, and interestingly, not in frontotemporal dementia patients, uh, that we can detect this high molecular weight tau and that the amount of the high molecular weight tau was sufficient in at least two of the instances where we had enough spinal fluid to start with to isolate it, that we could demonstrate that, that the high molecular weight tau that came out of the patients, out of a living patient with a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, was sufficient to propagate in the experimental models that, that, that we had used. And, and so in summary, it, it seems as if we've isolated a form of tau which is sufficient to propagate, which appears to be responsible, at least to, to some extent, for tau moving from one, one neuron to the next neuron, that it can be found in minute quantities in, in, in spinal fluid from Alzheimer patients, that even that tau can be released and taken up and transported down axons and, 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 and propagate. And, and that we've developed a variety of experimental systems. And part of what I wanted to do in this lecture was to describe the experimental systems because with any luck, they'll be of, 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 of some use to other people as well. Uh, it's, it's not a paratelical filament. It's not a beta-pleated sheet. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't come down at 3,000 G. It doesn't, by EM, it's amorphous. So, n nor is it monomeric. So, our, our, our current guess is three to six, but we, we could be wrong. All right. I mentioned that amyloid in the brain is, is, is a consistent feature of Alzheimer's disease. And, and there's this interesting neuropathologic, relatively rare condition in which people get tangles but without any plaques, and it's called PART, P-A-R-T. And, and in that instance, the tangles almost always stay confined to a Brock 1-2-ish place, so mostly in the limbic system, but hardly ever get out to the cortex. Whereas in patients who, who the much more common instance of having amyloid in the cortex, the tangles, of course, get out there too. And, and the tangles in PART 
and the tangles in Alzheimer's disease are indistinguishable, at least at least to, to everything we've done. So you immunostain them, you look at them, you scratch them, you, you tell them jokes, they, they all respond just, just, just exactly the same way. We wanted to know, however, whether or not there was something uniquely different about the, the tau in the brains of patients who had amyloid compared to the tau in the brains of people who didn't have amyloid. And there was a variety of work in the experimental literature, and I'll show you some from our own work as well, that suggested that there's some synergy between tau deposition and, and, and amyloid. Uh, here I, I, I just show that, that the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease really begin when those tangles get to the cortex. And, and so from the perspective of, of this sort of clinical pathological correlation, figuring out what it is that, that trips that trigger that gets tangles from more or less confined to spread out over the brain would, would, would potentially have a clinical impact. So when we take the mouse that, that only has tau in the entorhinal cortex and we cross it with a mouse that, that expresses APPPS1, is the Jack's mouse, and, and, and so it has amyloid throughout the cortex. And we asked, we do that same experiment. Remember, it took 18 to 24 months to, to see uh, uh, tangles in, in, in the dentate gyrus in, in the entorhinal cortex only mouse. When we cross in the amyloid, so we reproduce something that looks sort of more like, like Alzheimer's disease, that takes 10 to 12 months. And the number of neurons that develop tangles increases by uh, two orders of magnitude. And the amount of neuronal loss, again, increases by two orders of magnitude at a much, much earlier phase. So there's something about amyloid being present in the cortex that accelerates this propagation phenomena, which matches up really well with the, 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 the clinical data that, that, that we have. And so this just demonstrates that the number of neurons that remain uh, at, a, at an early time point, this is at 10 months of age, in the uh, initial entorhinal cortex-only mouse that's just normalized to be 100. Uh, when, you, when you haven't changed the tau at all, and in fact the amount of tau hasn't changed, but you've added the, the plaques, uh, you see that, that the number of neurons that remain goes down by 90%. So in terms of neurotoxicity, which is what I believe is the final common denominator of, of the neural system failure that drives the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, the presence of plaques, even though there's very few plaques in the entorhinal cortex in these mice, the presence of plaques throughout the cortex sets up a tissue-specific response, which drives neural death. And not surprisingly at this point, when we, when we uh, do the biochemistry on this, all of this correlates with this high molecular weight smear, which is hyperphosphorylated, shows up in the SEC column in those fractions two and three, and, 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 and so forth and so on. When we use the seeding assay, which is the FRED assay that I mentioned before, and we asked whether or not the tau in those uh, APP crossed mice is different, from the tau in the, in the mouse alone. And again, these, the tau driver is exactly the same in, in both of these. It turns out that, that using the seeding assay, the APPPS1 crossed 4510 mice have, have roughly three to four fold increased uh, amount of seeding for exactly the same amount of, of input tau. So that the tau is much more bioactive 
when, when amyloid is present. Now, amyloid by itself leads to no seeding, and in fact, we can, we can uh, immunodeplete the, the mixture that comes out of the APPPS1 4510 cross um, for, for A beta, and uh, the immunodepletion doesn't affect the seeding. So there's something about the conformation of tau which has changed, and it looks as if more of it has converted into this high molecular weight, hyperphosphorylated form. And so we, we begin to have now a biochemical handle, a molecular handle, on what it is that changes tau to make it more bioactive, more likely to spread, more likely to lead to, to potential neurotoxicity. Again, all this is in the mouse. And, and, and so we came back to that initial observation of part versus the sort of equivalent of part, with, but, but with, with, with blacks as well. We had half a dozen cases of, of, of each in the brain bank. We walked down the hall, and, 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 and Matt Frosch uh, uh, found them. We uh, selected out various parts of the brain. And, of course, when the human material, you don't have all the controls that you have in the mouse. But, but bottom line is, is that the same phenomenon occurred, and you can focus on the lower right, right panel there where uh, the uh, red bars show that, that, especially in areas where there are terminals, the... Uh, part, the brains that had amyloid have, uh, again, roughly two to three times more propagation than the brains that didn't have amyloid, despite having, having been normalized for the amount of input tau to, to the assay. So that there is something about the presence of, 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 of the amyloid in the cortex. And, and that doesn't have to be amyloid. It could be microglial activation. It could be astrocytic activation. It could be, you know, m- many, many things. But, but there's something about that combination of amyloid and tau in the cortex that converts tau to a different molecular species, which, which has uh, the properties that it allows uptake, propagation, and instructed templating. Of, of tau in, in either mouse or, or in, in some recent work in iPS cells in human tau as well. So I just want to spend the last, you know, eight minutes or so um, talking about another transition. Uh, the focus, as, as, as you can gather from this first part, is that soluble tau, rather than the, the filamentous neurofibrillary tangle, seems to be the bioactive species. And, and this is a little disappointing for somebody who trained as a neuroanatomist and, 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 and as a neuropathologist um, because I, I never could quite, quite uh, and because you look under the microscope and, and it must be true what you see under the microscope and you can see tangles, whereas you can't see any of these soluble things. Those are all sort of figments of a biochemist's imagination. And, and so it's a little disappointing to learn that, that really those things that Alzheimer himself saw and, 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 and that earned the name of the disease after him uh, w- really may not be the relevant bioactive species. But it still, obviously, they're involved in some way. And so how can we relate this soluble, oligomeric, hyperphosphorylated form of tau to the neurofibrillary tangles? And, and this is a, a challenge that, that um, uh, Suze Wegman and, and Bahar Efkabar uh, said uh, uh, took on. And, and this is very preliminary data that I just want to share with you because it, it brings a, a different kind of biology to bear, which is it's pretty exciting. 
Now, tau has always been viewed as being an intrinsically disordered protein. So most proteins, of course, have a very standard uh, uh, structure. They come off the ribosome, they fold, and they, they do whatever they're supposed to do. It, it turns out that tau doesn't really do that by NMR and, and, and CD um, physical biochemistry approaches, they flop, it, tau flops around. And it's only when it's associated with microtubules does it adopt a, 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 a formal structure. And even then, the N-terminus sort of forms this sort of fuzzy coat around the microtubules. By atomic force microscopy, which, which, which um, uh, we did with Suze Wegman a, a couple of years ago. And so w- w- in the last two or three years, several groups... Um, uh, highlighted by Tony Hyman, uh, who has no relationship to, to me at all, and, and yet I desperately want to publish a paper with him. Um, and, and actually, we have one, one submitted now from, from, from this work. Tony Hyman described in, in the setting of ALS-associated molecules some a funny property of, of intrinsically disordered molecules in which they can sort of glum together, and, and they form... A, a, a liquid-liquid phase separation, and it's a little bit like oil and water. That if you there there, but but make that in your head a little bit more miscible than oil and water is. So we're like glycerol and water. That under some circumstances you can get a little drop that's a glycerol, but if you shake it up, it it it, it completely goes away. Now make believe that that's completely reversible and under the cell's control and can happen in seconds, and you have Tony Hyman's notion of phase separation. And on the surface of these little droplets, that, of liquid droplets that occur within cells, catalytically important reactions occur. And in the instance of, of, of some of the things that Tony has demonstrated, uh, uh, they, they can actually take on some of the functions of immediate response genes to stress. And, and so there's really interesting biology about what's happening. And essentially, it's a way for the cell to immediately and reversibly create something that looks like an organelle. So this, this was true for a small handful of proteins that, that, that Tony had explored. It turned out that, that tau really didn't follow the rules that, that Tony had, had, had um, laid out for what kinds of proteins would be intrinsically disordered and, 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 and be able to uh, form these liquid-liquid phase separations. But, but in, in, in some ways, when we considered what ha- might happen to tau, uh, it, it conceivably uh, could form these LLPSs. And, and so um, Susan Bahar went down to St. Jude's um, uh, and, and in that laboratory did the first set of experiments asking whether or not tau might form these LL, uh, these, this LLPS, the liquid-liquid phase separation uh, droplets. And, and, of course, I'm telling you this story. So it, it, it turned out that it did. Um, and, uh, and, and not only does tau form these droplets, but it turns out that the high molecular weight, hyperphosphorylated tau forms them beautifully. Recombinant tau, low molecular weight tau doesn't. And intriguingly, mutant tau which causes frontotemporal dementia, that P301L mutation, for example, that, that I, I, I suggested to you, does without the benefit of phosphorylation. And if you block phosphorylation in any of a variety of ways, if you use phosphatases and get rid of the phosphates, if you uh, take a, a, a recombinant tau but introduce artificial sort of um, pseudophosphocytes along the way, it does. And so it really, the, 
it, 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 it's, it's completely true with isolated protein on a slide under a phase contrast microscope. You can watch them happen. It happens in a few seconds. They're really cool. They form these little droplets. I actually had a movie which wouldn't play on, on my Mac, and so um, I, I didn't bring it in. But you can just kind of watch them swirling around and wetting surfaces and doing just what, 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 what's supposed to happen. Yet, we, again, we, we, we challenge that this is a cool system in, in vitro, but does it happen in cells? And does it happen in neurons in vivo? And does it happen in the Alzheimer brain? And, and suffice to say uh, uh, that, it, that, that all that is true. And that also, although they happen very rapidly, they also sort of mature, and if you leave them sit around for five to ten days, they become thioflavin S positive. So they don't, but the EM doesn't look like a like a PHF. That would be way too nice. Um, but but there's some sort of maturation, which we think is is probably an oxidation phenomena, in in which these um, LLPSs actually sort of m- m- mature. So th- we think that they may be a way between this notion of a high molecular weight species which has certain biophysical properties and ultimately the development of this aggregate of, 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 of tau in the cell body. So we're not sure what the trigger that, that changes these high molecular weight, soluble, high, hyperactive, charged molecules is that, that forms LLPS. We don't know exactly what whether these foci form. We can actually watch them form and, and dissolve in, in cells. We now have a way to do that with multiphoton microscopy so that we can do it in, in the brain of a living, of, of a living mouse. Uh, these beta-pleated sheets uh, form relatively quickly in the course of a few days. It, 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 that was especially satisfying to me because some years ago we published a paper in, in, in which we'd done multi-photon microscopy of transgenic mice that overexpressed tau and formed tangles, and we were able to observe tangle formation in the course of a few days, and, and that always seemed like an odd thing, that that was just a bizarre thing for, for a mouse. Um, and, and even though nature was kind enough to accept the paper, it still seemed like a bizarre thing. And, and so, to, but to see that same sort of biophysical process actually happening with in, in, in under controlled conditions also seems like, like it, it, it might be true. And then maybe the most intriguing thing to me about this this whole new story is that um, FUS, TDP43, uh, HRNP, so ALS associated proteins all have the same biophysical property. And that's where J.P. Paul Taylor, who was down at St. Jude's, where we did the initial experiments, and and now more recently Tony Hyman as well, um, have been focusing their energies because these are proteins that undergo this same biophysical change under similar conditions, under phosphorylation or in mutant forms that that are associated with these diseases. And so it it feels as if this is a, a, a biophysical property that can underlie ALS, frontotemporal dementia, and Alzheimer's disease. And, and if that's the case, we might be getting closer to the truth of how it is that neurodegeneration leads to neuronal system dysfunction and death. So I'll just, just finish there, a quick, quick summary here, and then thank um, especially Suze and Bahar, 
who did this most recent work that, that I mentioned to you, acknowledged Karen Ash and, and, and George Carlston, with whom we did all the animal modeling, and, and of course, thank our generous folks who, who provided the support for, the, for this work. So thank you very much. So in, in, until this recent LLPS work, um, the answer to why tau would form these aggregates as opposed to some other protein was just, just that was a mystery of mob nature. And now it seems as if, it, it, at least we're, we're playing with the hypothesis, that these intrinsically disordered proteins, and it, it, it turns out that it's about 2% of the, of the expressed genome fall in this category, at least by, you know, depending on where you, where you put your cuts. Um, and, and so it's given us some targets to look at to see if any of those other things glum on with tau and, and, and form it. But at least it, it, it might explain why, why tau can adopt these unusual structures that are especially uh, stable. And it may well be that unless they're, they're stable structures that they don't accumulate in the brain and the neuropathologist never sees them. So exosomes would, would be membrane-bound, of course, and, and these are not membrane-bound by, by multiple diff, di, di, different markers. They also have a different viscosity, so, so we were able to find a, a fluorescent dye that was actually used in, in sort of the polymer physics world and, and apparently is a useful thing if you're doing microelectronics for some reason. But anyway, it's this fluorescent dye that changes its fluorescent properties based upon the viscosity of the solution it finds itself in. And, and so we're able to, to actually label these with, with the viscosity dye. And then when we change the conditions so that they dissolve, it, it, it goes away. Great question. Uh, uh, our initial experiments, not surprisingly, that was one of the first things we did to cells. Nothing happens in the presence of A-beta as far as we can tell right now. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep tweaking with, it, with this. But, uh, but I, there, that was a low-hanging fruit that would have been just wonderful, but data are data. And Stuart? So we, we 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 haven't um, we, we haven't done that. The, in, in terms of the propagation be, between cells, you know, we we we, um, we can block that with really to ninety plus percent with antibodies, and, and so so in my mind that argues a little bit against exosomes because you'd expect that that the ex, that the tau would be protected from from access to, to from antibodies. 
and you wouldn't think that tau would be on the surface of the exosomes and, and demonstrably isn't, as it, as it turns out, because we can isolate exosomes and, 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 and look. So, so at least in the model systems we have, it doesn't appear as if the exosomes are playing the major role. But, the, but, but I don't want to, it's, you know, it's sort of a negative result, and, 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 and I don't think that you can, it would be hazardous to overinterpret that. And, I'm sorry? You know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a deep believer that we don't really understand what microglia do. And, and, and if there was a role for microglia, I, I'd, I'd be happy to, to you know, accept that. I, I don't know that, again, these are all model systems, and, 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 and you want to be thoughtful about what's specific to the system and what, you know, what, what sort of real biology that's relevant to the disease. So, so that's a that's a great question, and and uh, we had thought that it was just sort of stochastic, that it, it was a rare event, and that you just had to wait a long time for it to eventually happen because it was a rare event, and you know, sort of like the Red Sox winning the World Series. You know, if you waited another hundred years, it it might happen again. Um, but but it, but our recent experience with the AAV 2A construct suggests that there is something fundamental about aging that either is changing the recipient cell or, or the release. It doesn't appear to be the release in, in, in early experiments, um, and, and we don't have the biochemistry back yet to know whether or not it's fundamentally changing the physical properties of the tau that's being released. So that, that's a great question, and, and I hope we'll answer it soon. Or, or, or at least one very, very, very hardworking postdoc. <laughs> yeah, no. So, so don't don't have any answers. Of course, the whole issue of what happens in aging to make people vulnerable for all of these diseases is uncertain. If in fact it's this, if if you take this last notion of the LPS and, and ask what it is that stabilizes it and, and keeps it around and so that it matures and aggregates and, 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 and then doesn't associate. The viscosity actually increases over, the, over that time. You know, that's the sort of process that I could imagine would, would have altered with aging in which any number of stresses like oxidative stress and, and so forth that, that might be associated with aging in general in, in that it's all sort of a kinetic stochastic property that it's just more likely to hang out for a longer time in an old brain than in a younger brain. So that's that's our working hypothesis, but it's 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 not.
So it, 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 again, thinking about this in terms of kinetic processes, there's a, if you seed cells that have a bioreporter in them that's fluorescent, you can watch over the course of the first three or four hours the seeds form, then they grow up, and then they, they stabilize. And if you continue watching them for 36 hours, about 10% of the cells that have seeds in them, you can't detect the seed anymore. You can see the seed, and then over the course of the 36-hour time period, it, it no longer is, is, is present, even though the cell is still there, which might mean that our optics are lousy and we lose 10% of them, or it might mean that, that they act, the cell actually has the capability of, of degrading them to, to some extent. I favor the latter in interpretation, not because I have so much faith in our optics, but because it, it feels like the biology ought to have a forward reaction and a back reaction. But, but that's literally last week's data. So, but we're, we're trying to develop the tools to, to get at that, because wouldn't it be cool if we could figure out a way to accelerate that back reaction? That's, the, that's exactly the, the sort of, you know, notion that, that we favor, which is that the, I, we've done the crosses with town nulls, for example, and, and again, see propagation continue to occur, but it doesn't stabilize because the endogenous tau isn't there to, to misfold and sort of reprime the pump. And, and, and it's entirely plausible that the presence of A-beta is doing something like simply causing the proteasome to be overwhelmed and, and therefore allowing the... The, the tau to accumulate. So that's that's uh, what our thinking is. Yeah. So the propagation that you apply those to is implies that there may be a very specific cell biology, cell biology to this if they're propagating synapses rather than to adjacent cells. So I, I should be careful. We've we've demonstrated that that it can happen transsynaptically. I'm, I'm pretty convinced it also happens locally. And, and so some of the systems that we've developed, like these microfluidic devices, are designed to, to highlight the, the propagation across synapses. But I'm, I'm not positive that that's the only place it happens, and I'd be surprised if it were. I'm sorry? Yeah, I, I don't think it does. In, in, in fact, embarrassingly, you can use hex cells for all these assays, too. And, and, and so kidney cells don't. You'd think I would have. <laughs> um, not yet. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, I, I'm, I, we're a little late. I don't want to keep people from their appointed rounds, but. Thank you.